Hello, I am Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mel Plus. I am joined this week, as every week, by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Hello, Imogen. Hello. Love Island. (laughs) (laughs) Your starter for ten. Do you know what? I have never watched it. (laughs) That's because your daughter is not like my daughter. Presumably. Well, no. Do you know? I did speak to her about it because we we were thought we didn't mm. think we might discuss it, and she sort of slightly rolled her eyes and said, "It is too much of an undertaking because yes. it requires absolute dedication. Yes. You can't just dip in and out. No, you have to mainline it. Uh, no, yes, I don't know. I mean, my daughter and her boyfriend watched it. It's a thing. They watched right. it together, and That's then they sweet. and then they chat about all the people right. in it. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of stuff about Gemma Owen, who's very young, who's the same age as Beatrice, so Beatrice is particularly mm. involved, interested in that. Mm. And she went out briefly. Went oh, with out, a very old man. Uh, with a very old man who was actually 27. Yes. So obviously not a very old yes. man at all. Yes. A, a child, <laughs> as far as we're concerned. <laughs> yes. But yes, Italian, Italian, Stallion. Is Italian? It's called Davide, si. Sí. Davide. Um, um, oh, he sounds lovely. He was Maybe hilarious. I might watch it now. <laughs> he was absolutely hilarious. Is and he dark and handsome and slightly? No, he's he's quite blonde and sort oh, of, uh, very from northern Italy. Then I don't know. I, I, oh, anyway. Sarah, this it's is quite fun. Yeah, um, and then there's lots of other people. And what's so interesting is that all the girls are quite bright. And actually have things to say. Wow. And are they all superannuated with an awful uh, lot of the, lips the, and the, tits the and stuff? The slight weird thing is that the girls all look the same because they've all had the same... I know, but this Treat is the thing. stuff done to them, which is really weird. Mm. So it's quite hard to tell them apart if you're me. <laughs> but if you've got a teenager helping you, that's good. Do you need your glasses? Um, <laughs> do you need your spectacles? <laughs> which one's that? Yes. And the boys, they also all look the same. They've oh. all got shaved chests. They're all very, oh. they're totally hairless, like sort of little slippery eels. Oh, like, yes. like, like, like greased anyway, up seals. But the thing is, it's just a really unpleasant ha- format. I mean, they did a thing this week where they... They introduced one of poor Gemma's ex-boyfriends into the villa, which was really... This is the producers. I mean, they are awful. Mm. I mean, I think it's a psychological assault course. Well, do you know what? I spoke to a friend of mine... And it's not... shouldn't be, really. I spoke to a friend of mine who used to do reality TV, Mm. and he said there's a test which is called the red wine on the bride's test. (laughs) So if you're the sort of person who's capable of chucking a glass of red wine over a bride in her white dress, you're allowed on reality television because you can, you know, you blow up really quickly. If you go, oh no, that's totally unreasonable. I wouldn't possibly do that and ruin her day. (laughs) They can go, well, off you go then. uh, No, so yes, so that's the thing. So they've got this girl who's 19 and she's now got a sort of, not a boyfriend, I don't know, a partner. No, they they sort of partner them up with people. So she's got this bloke who's a fishmonger or something. Anyway, uh, he's called Mr. Bish, which rhymes with fish, which is quite entertaining. <laughs> and they brought in her ex-boyfriend, who looks almost identical to Mr. Bish, so it's now quite no. difficult to tell them apart, but there's been a bit of that. I mean, yes, it's just bear-baiting, really. Yeah, but the problem is you actually are quite clever. So why... Is this like Mogadon television? No, no, I don't. I mean, actually, to be honest with you, the other night I actually said I can't watch this anymore mm. and wandered off. And in fact, Beatrice said, actually, it's quite boring. Oh, it's okay. It's quite boring, this Is series. it? Yeah, it's quite boring. Oh, okay. Well, you sold it to me and now you've not sold it to me. <laughs> well, there are moments. I mean, you could probably watch the highlights, maybe. Oh, when is, when is there that? are, I think they do highlights somewhere. Oh, good. Okay, uh, well, maybe it's just an end of season highlights because that would probably yeah, be due. Oh, just the internet, I'm sure, will give okay. you some thoughts. You can probably just follow it on Instagram. Great. Well, anyway. thanks for that. 
<laughs> no doubt they'll probably do something really stupid. I mean, that's the whole point, is that mm. it is actually fundamentally And who's quite... presenting it this time? Is there a oh, presenter? So a blonde lady. Oh, OK. Can you tell her apart from the contestants? Not really, no. Oh, OK. No. Great. No. Great. Um, Sounds like a proper, like, double spectacles evening. It is a double spectacles <laughs> evening. The funny thing is that the thing is they don't let them drink. That's the, oh. that's the other thing, is that they're only allowed one glass of alcohol. Oh, that's no fun. No, and Beatrice said to me, well, Mum, I would go on Love Island, but I couldn't cope with just one glass. No. <laughs> and aren't they all wearing recycled clothes? I read that. They are now, because they never did before. Before they used to just, you know, wear all mm. clothes made by tiny fingers in, oh. in India. Oh. Now they're trying to be woke, so they're oh. wearing recycled bikinis. But oh, they're it's... all just wearing bikinis. No, it's PC gone mad then. Yes, so they've, got, <laughs> they've now got second-hand thongs, which makes me feel a bit queasy. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want a second-hand thong, would you? No. No, I'd like my thong to be new. Not that I'd ever wear a thong, but if I did. <laughs> anyway, coming up on today's show, a new survey says that women feel at their hottest and most confident at 53. Is it time to put our ideas about what life in our 50s is actually like behind us? Mm. Yes. Yes. And could cosmetic surgery change your life? Probably. Oh, God, one would oh, hope. Almost certainly. Well, <laughs> for that price, yes. Yes. We'll be talking to Catherine Knight, who says that a nose job was the key to improving her self-esteem. Good. But first, why are so many children starting school without basic life skills? A year-long inquiry has uncovered the shocking state of early years education in the UK. Schools are having to care for a rising number of children who aren't toilet trained, are unable to feed themselves and in some cases can't even say their own names. The problem is so bad that one school had to give an assembly on using a knife and fork, while another has employed care workers to change nappies. Joining us now is Neil Leach, CEO of the Early Years Alliance. Neil, is this new or has it always been this way? I have to say it's not always been this particular way, but of course the pandemic has brought its own set of challenges for the earlier sector. I mean, it is fair to say that what we are seeing is more and more educators report Mm. to us that they are seeing children who have social and emotional development delays, Mm. language delays. And, you know, many children, for example, have been cooped up in their homes, haven't had the ability to socialise and play with other children. So we're starting to now see the effects of, did I say, COVID. And, uh, but what are their parents doing? Well, yeah, I mean, yes. I'm sorry, the idea that I would have sent my child to school in, an, a, in, a, nappy. in a nappy would have just been... I mean, we're talking about rising five here, aren't we? So they're four to five-year-olds, presumably, <clears> if they're starting in reception. I mean, by that stage, if you haven't taught your child to use the loo, you know, I'm sorry... It seems very odd. Why has COVID made this worse? I'd have thought it would have made it better. better. Yeah, exactly. If you're sitting at home with your children all day. I have to say, I'm not here to criticise parents. I mean, Mm. I have to say that I've come across several parents that have really struggled throughout COVID. They've been trying to hold down jobs. They've been trying Mm. to be on, you know, virtual meetings, caring for children. I mean, it's been a real struggle for parents. What, What I can only deal with, actually, is that the fact that children's development has stalled and... And parents, I have to say, did not get the level of support they would normally have. I mean, often parents be able to perhaps get the support of baby and toddler groups, parent and toddler groups. And, and Neil, I'm sorry, maybe I'm being obtuse here, but I don't understand <laughs> what support is required to teach mm. your child to speak their own name. I mean, it would seem pretty basic parenting. Mm. I mean, that's what you do with children. You teach them these basic things. And yes, of course, they make mistakes and they get things wrong. And mm. children who start school always mm-hmm. end up wetting their pants by mistake because they get nervous they or, they yeah. can't, or they're yeah. too scared to ask for the loop. But they're yeah. not, ultimately, they're not fundamentally unable to do those basic things. I mean, it can't all be COVID, surely. Mm. I'm not suggesting it's all COVID, but what I can accurately say is we haven't seen this level 
of developmental delay before. COVID has most definitely exacerbated the issue. I mean, I'm talking to managers who are saying to me, for example, that they're spending lots of time, you know, with children who have these developmental delays. They're Mm. talking to their colleagues. They're trying to pacify them because they're saying, look, these children are kicking, they're biting. Mm. We've never experienced anything like it. They're, They're fighting with other children. You know, probability analysis tells you if this is only just starting to happen, Mm. then there must be some connection with COVID. And I come back to this point. I'm not here to criticize parents on Mm. their parental duties, etc. What I do know is we have unprecedented levels of anxiety and stress in families at this particular point in time. So parents would have been under enormous, enormous pressures, enormous stress. And, you know, we're here to try and support and deal with the current situation. And I do accept that there are children that have problems. Do you think that maybe there's a sort of safety net that kicks in slightly before reception under normal circumstances where children go to pre-preschool well, or programs nursery? programmes like Sure Start and yes. things like that. And I'm, so I'm, yeah. presumably those were all shut down during COVID, weren't mm. they? So, you know, maybe... I mean, I, I think, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I would say this, that many networks basically closed down, but mm. actually... You know, the, the sort of more informal support was also unavailable. Yeah, People mm. couldn't actually go and see their friends and say, do you know what? I can't Susan's do this. kept me up all night long. Yeah. yeah I, I or can't, granny. You know, how do you or deal granny. with this? Granny. Grannies tend to be the ones who teach children how to use knife and fork. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, that's grandparents were a major part. <laughs> yeah. yeah major, grandparents yeah. were a major part of support. Yeah. And all of a sudden, none of that became mm. available. So. You can imagine as a parent, you know, where historically you would have relied on parents and friends Mm, and mm. all of those informal support mechanisms, they vanished. Yeah. They vanished. You were left left to... Particularly with first-time parents, I should imagine. I mean, the idea of of potty training children, I remember thinking... I'm sure there's a video on YouTube. There probably is a video, but I do remember (laughs) being quite anxious about it. But also, I suppose there wasn't anywhere for them to go at that point. So Mm. the idea of taking your child, there was no... The idea of training somebody is yeah. quite difficult if the loo is always available. But also, little children actually do learn a lot from each other. So mm. if they're isolated, presumably, Neil, they yeah. can't, they can't I, do that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've had parents talk to me seriously saying that my child has been locked up in this apartment, this mm. flat. They haven't gone out. They haven't played. They literally sat watched telly or they've been on a tablet or whatever it happens to be mm. they haven't socialized they haven't done the things that we would normally do and yeah. parents perhaps became over anxious about yeah. you know what parents can sort of describe as normal normal activities mm. normal problems they probably yeah, there was thought that, they were there a was lot that, worse than they were there mm. was that awful thing during the sort of height of COVID mm. hysteria where all the playgrounds were locked up. Do you remember that? Oh, I that? remember that, yes. There were padlocks on all the yes, playgrounds yes. and all the parks. Yes. Yeah. And uh, just, including all the outdoor gym equipment. Yeah. Remember, that was all locked up in I a sort of weird way. No, There'll be no basketball around here. So, I mean, but those of us who were kind of quite opposed to this sort of lockdown, mm. have, I mean, I've written a lot about children because I had teenagers with a different set of issues, mm. but still mm-hmm. a still issues i mean i suppose the only thing really to do i mean i feel sorry for teachers because actually you know it's not really a teacher's job to change well, of a course nappy, it isn't it? you didn't honest, you're not you a... didn't train for six years no. to change somebody's nappy how are teachers coping i mean you know is there going to be a fund for sort of and also is it, are you anxious that it's going to be worse next year because i presumably this is a report for 
children who are affected at the you know because we've had nearly two years of lockdown yeah. this would be the first lot that have gone in so presumably next september yeah, it might it, well be worse i think it goes way beyond actually the pandemic because i think what the report fundamentally stressed and it was i have to say i found it quite refreshing i thought it would focus in on older children predominantly etc cetera, etc cetera, but mm. so it was really quite refreshing to see somebody for one's value, the importance of early years and, and appreciate that mm. this is a stage of education. It isn't just about babysitting, making mm. sure that, you know, children are safe. This is about sort of educating them. But I, I think the challenges that we have is we have an early year sector where we have a recruitment and retention crisis that we have never witnessed before. We have people leaving the sector in droves. I'll tell you why they say they're leaving. It's because they are exhausted and they feel undervalued. And so when you have a situation where you have children coming in who need more support, I mean, it is ironic and, and interesting that on the very day that number 10 leaked, that they were looking at proposals to change what we would describe as the adult-to-child ratios. In other words, that educators in early years could look after more children. That mm. Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Ofsted was actually, you know, doing the round saying that these children actually have stored from a developmental perspective and they need even more support. Mm. So you've got, ironically, children who need more support, you've got a workforce that's leaving in droves. That won't be cured overnight and that will not improve the position just because COVID happens to diminish. And do you think, they're leaving, but do you think they're, part of the reason they're leaving in droves is because the situation is now so challenging? I think it's, it, there are a few reasons. One is because many felt throughout COVID, actually, in the early years, that all the conversations, all the support was about schools, 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 schools. Mm. It was schools that got the PPE. And this is not a criticism of schools, I have to say, but schools got all the PPE. We had to then try and find it and buy it at quadruple prices, basically, to protect some colleagues and stuff. It was schools that got access to the testing, but actually in early years, we got it just a few days before it became generally available to the public. You talked about sort of recovery earlier, the recovery programs and the catch-up. Look at the amount of money that was allocated to children who happened to be under the age of five. It is peanuts. It is less than 3%. And yet anybody who knows about child development will know these are the most important years. This mm. is where you shape the life of a mm. child. And so I think they are exhausted and I think they are undervalued. And therefore, when you have a position whereby people can move into other areas of work, because you know, generally we have a, an employment problem full mm. stop mm. in other sectors, why wouldn't you? Mm. And when you're paid pretty low wages, this is not a sector that, you know, gets anything like the salaries of teachers, mm. etc. Why wouldn't you move? Mm. And so I mean I think there's a perception I with early I think there's a perception with early years that it's generally quite a happy place. Mm. You're teaching little people who are quite sweet. Finger painting and stuff. And doing finger painting <laughs> yeah. and, and taking actually, them to the actually, park. But, but actually I, that's quite crucial. Do you think you're missing the collapse of Shore Start? Do you remember that was uh, my children used to go to Shore Start? Because mm. mm. that was a very good programme, wasn't it? It was a good program, but the reality is that all ed early years education sort of settings should be in a position to support children. But it does require a mindset that says we recognize the value of educating very young children. Mm. We recognize that the return to the country in terms of human capital investment will be enormous. We, if we prevent problems occurring, it will save us a fortune further down the line. Mm. So I do think that we should be really considering that where we put the investment into, 
And at the moment, it is appalling. We invest just a fraction of what many countries do as a percentage of their GDP. And that, I think, is because we don't view... You used a term earlier, which was about, you know, happy places, etc. It's not a term that would be used for schools. They are happy places, and people like to think that they are professionals and they are doing a great job, and they are. But we wouldn't think of schools as being, you know, little happy places that we just send children off to to keep them safe. We assume that we keep them safe, but we're there to educate them. And it's no different for an early years setting, whether that be a home-based childbinder or whether that actually be a nursery. That was Neil Leach, CEO of the Early Years Alliance. A new survey of over 50s has found that people feel at their hottest at the age of 53. I'm very hot. Very hot. It's the menopause, <laughs> it is, darling. Yes. No, it's not. Anyway, I'm 55, so I'm really hot. Gorgeous. Anyway, people also said that as they passed 50, they left their inhibitions and insecurities behind. Oh. Or four in ten, so they have never felt more confident about their looks. <laughs> we are being joined now by the founder and editor of Fab After 50, Kerry Wilden. Kerry, this is true, is it not? Oh, absolutely true. I mean, I set up the Fab After 50 website 12, 13 years ago. And I think the landscape has changed so much since then. And I think we are so much confident to have so much offer and prove we have so much more to offer. You see, I have, because there's a lot of stuff around about the menopause. Mm. We had all the ladies going Mm -hmm. into Parliament this week saying your menopause needs to be taken. I personally think there are some good sides to the menopause and one of the good sides to the menopause is that you don't care what anyone thinks anymore. Yes, but that's very much you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't have all those sort of squishy, touchy-feely hormones mm. floating around you Embrace your, your inner witch, is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, basically it releases the inner witch. Yes. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> well, I think it releases so much. I really do. I think, you know, is that we're not sort of tired of that monthly cycle, we just get on with life. Exactly. And we don't really care what other people think anymore. Yeah. If, they, if they don't like me, don't like what I'm wearing, but that's tough. I'm mm. happy with what I'm wearing. I'm happy with what I'm doing. So that's me. Mm. You know, like basically like it or leave it. Yeah. And I think we do have that confidence to stand up for ourselves a little bit more. That's true. There's a, a line, and Candice Bushnell wrote a, a book called Is There Still Sex in the City? <laughs> and there's a whole paragraph about women over the age of 50 saying they look like they did in their 20s, only better. And there is that thing that if you look at photographs of yourself in the 20s, you think, hmm, well, you know, I I did look young, but apart from that, my hair's rubbish. Yeah, Yeah, I'm wearing a stupid dress. I've got terrible eyeliner. My eyebrows look rubbish. So I think the whole hair and beauty industry has also finally helped helped and caught up. And there's also a lot of things one can do. Tweakments. Tweakments. But, But also women over the age of 50 are looking after themselves better, yeah. eating better, working out, all that sort of stuff. So physically they look better than they did probably in their 20s. But also I think there's also an element of thinking, I'm still here so I might as well enjoy it because I've probably only got another exactly. 15 or 20 <laughs> years left. And I'm sort of, you suddenly wake up when you're about 50 or at least I didn't thought, mm. gosh, OK. okay. <laughs> Time to get serious. Time to concentrate. <laughs> concentrate now. Also, often your children are a little less, I mean, they're obviously problematic, but they're a little less hands-on physically than mm. they were before. Yeah. Don't you think? Yes. But I just think also, we, we, just, well, we just want to enjoy life. It's not a dress rehearsal at the end of the day. And I think if you come to the realisation that it's now or never. Yes, now or never is definitely the case, I think, a lot. To reinvent what we want to do. I was going to say, I do think there's an element of thinking, I've got to just get it all sorted out now. But I also think when you get to the age of 50, 
it is kind of the half century and it does sort of focus the mind. I think a lot of people, I know a lot of friends, a lot of girlfriends who have made radical changes to their lives around that age. That's true, yeah. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. they've either suddenly finally lost the weight that they wanted to lose Mm -hmm. or they've finally done the thing that they should have been doing because it wakes, you know, you you think to yourself, well, I'm either going to be like this the rest of my life or I'm going to make a change and I'm going to sort of, you know, get on with it and, and be who I want to mm. be for the rest of my life. I, and I also think the other thing that's really important is that women now in their 50s have their own means. Mm. You know, my mother's generation didn't. So quite honestly, they didn't no. really have a lot of choices. Oh, yeah. No, what I know personally as well, people revisit their relationships. I did. Mm. Now I was in an unhappy situation. I thought, do you really want decades more of this? And the answer was no. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So... You know, but again, it's having the confidence to make that break, mm, yeah. and um, and I did, and I, I don't regret it at all. Mm. Um, but I think it is a time. Where, so you do, you just yes, you do look backwards, but you also look forwards and think, do you want more of the same, or exactly. do you want something different? Mm. Yeah, and I think women in their, that age are quite dangerous for men or for husbands <laughs> because because you know <laughs> there's nothing more frightening than than a 50 year old plus woman who's had a few tweakments, had it got her hair done, has mm. her own income, and suddenly thinks. Mm. Mm. Maybe I don't want to be sitting next to you snoring, watching <laughs> Antiques Roadshow on a Sunday night. Maybe I might like to go out with the lads. <laughs> but also I think women aren't disappearing like they used to no. over the age of 50. I mean, the, no. the the list of women, you know, like Kate Blanchett, Gillian Anderson, Jennifer Anderson, Mariah Carey, they're all, they all look great and they're all still mm. earning money packing. Liz sti- Hurley. Le- oh, I mean, Liz there's Hur- one person who looks better now than she did when she was 20. Yeah, it's extraordinary, Liz Hurley. Yeah, exactly. So you, so all these women used to disappear. You know, they were only basically allowed to read mm. the news if they were lucky. Yes, but now they're, you know, still. Um, yes, and we had Kirsty. We had Kirsty Young coming Kirstie back. Young, yeah. No, I think that's it's a bit scary for people. At, on the whole, I think there's a sort of sense of okay, mm. who are all these terrifying women? Have you noticed lots more traffic to your site than since you started it? Yes. Well, I think also it does go up and down depending on what's, what's topical and what, mm. you know, what things we have on there. Mm. And unfortunately, for various reasons, I've had to take a slight step back recently and I've just come back back into it full time. Mm. Um, but I think there's also a lot more information out there now for women over 50. Mm. You just have to look at, you know, at Instagram for inspiration in terms of what to wear. Yeah. Um, and I think that certainly on the, on the website, anything to do with reinvention, people mm. are really interested in. Mm. There people who do reinvent their lives. I mean, I just put something on with this lady if she had a child at the age of 45, she was the oldest mother on the school gates. Mm. You know, and she said that with a totally different attitude to the younger mums. Mm. Mm. Yes, that's true. And it's those sorts of things that people like. So those real life stories that people who do navigate their 50s totally differently to how people have navigated them before. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. I think women are particularly benefiting from it because I think men have always done what they particularly what they what they wanted. To do. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so I'll turn now. <laughs> well, very lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. That was Kerry Wilden, founder and editor of FabAfter50.co.uk. Brilliant. Rhinoplasty, or mm. to use the more common term, a nails job, mm-hmm. was transformative for my next guest, Catherine Knight, who wrote about her experience for the Daily Mail, saying that she had felt self-conscious her entire life before taking the plunge by going under the knife at the age of 35, a mere child. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine joins us now. Hi, Catherine. How's your nose? Oh, hello. It's magnificent, Sarah. Don't mind telling you, Sarah and Imogen. It's a magnificent <laughs> creation. I was 35 when I had it done. 
Catherine, I've had two nose jobs, just so you know, because I had an accident on my face, so they oh. rebuilt my nose, which was a bit different. So it's very painful. It is painful, but for me, the pain was well worth it because I used yeah. to remove the self-consciousness I'd felt my whole lifetime. I should say at this point, by the way, that the reason it took me so many years to write about it was that my father had never noticed I'd had a nose job and would have been horrified <laughs> if he'd found out. And it's only after he, he died so three years ago that I felt yeah. able. That's that I felt able to it. it was also his nose, by the way. That, and oh, so it's even more extraordinary that, that he didn't notice <laughs> Yeah, that I'd, that I'd removed effectively his nose from my face. <laughs> so what did they do to yours then? What did they do? Did they shave the nose bone? I had a bump, a sort of Roman bump mm. on my nose. And I actually thought that all they needed to do was kind of saw it down. Um, it mm. turns out it's a little bit more complex than that. And I remember the surgeon saying that actually when you just take a little bit from the top of the nose, it changes the whole structure of the nose. So you actually have to remold the whole thing. I don't know exactly what happened. I do know that it, uh, one of the nurses says that, right, that told me that rhinoplasty is one of the most sort of unpleasantly sort of violent pieces of mm. cosmetic surgery you can have. I think there's a lot of sawing and drilling and hammering, yes. um, which is oh. slightly grim to contemplate, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, now they do it. So you see it all the time on Instagram. You now do they do it using fillers. They, yeah. do, they do it using fillers. And actually, it's all about creating an optical illusion. So mm. if you've got someone with a bump on their nose, you can fill other bits of the yeah. nose. I don't really know how that works, because I would have thought your nose just get enormous. Because it's even bigger. <laughs> but it seems to be very successful. Mm. Has, um, it, has yours lasted? Because your nose carries on growing as you get older. So you can change all the time. Has yours actually stayed in the same shape? It has. I mean, that was one of the things that sort of also made me sort of determined to have it done back in uh, 15 years ago, because I thought, oh, my goodness, if my Roman bump keeps growing, then pretty soon mm. it will overshadow my whole face. So the kind of the notion <laughs> of my nose continuing to grow was another of the things that sort of took me to the surgeon's mm. office. But now it doesn't. It doesn't seem to have grown, actually. I don't know whether the growth has been halted in its tracks, but uh, perhaps I need yes. to monitor it carefully. Do you have I children, Catherine? I do. So I've got a nine-year-old daughter. Have they got the nose? <laughs> no, well, who knows? No pun intended, because obviously at the moment she has the cute button nose of any small mm. child. But what's interesting, actually, is that she, she learned about my surgery from the front page of the Daily Mail because they puffed my piece on the front. Nice, and my daughter, it nice. Gets, it gets delivered, <laughs> without telling me, it gets delivered and my daughter always picks up the paper in the morning. And <laughs> so she was shocked to find my two noses, old and new, staring out from the front page and I read the headline. Funny. Agog. So I'd planned to have a sort of measured conversation about, you know, self-esteem, but um, that actually didn't quite happen in the end. Um, <laughs> her verdict was that it was a nice nose, but I probably could have saved a lot of money by covering my old nose with makeup. To your point right. earlier, Sarah, about fillers. So, um, yeah, I will have to have a longer conversation with her at some point about it. But uh, for yeah. now, she's lost interest, to be fair. Now, my daughter keeps asking if she can have her nose done. And she's got a very nice nose, but it's just because she keeps looking on the Instagram no, and sees don't. it all being done and thinks, don't. oh, I want to have that. It's, it's really, it is a really painful mm. operation. Also, I don't know how your breathing is. Can you breathe properly through it? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's a high functioning nose. I've never had any oh, okay. problems on that front. I do, <laughs> I do think what I will say is that now yeah. I've had a daughter. I'm not sure. I'm glad I had the surgery before I had my daughter. I think I would find it harder 
to undergo a cosmetic procedure under general that's anesthetic true. Mm, now that mm, I'm a mum. That's true. I mean, I did, the night before I went for surgery, I didn't sleep a wink because I thought, what if I do actually die on the operating table? I will literally be dying for vanity, effectively. Yes. Um, and that, that was a kind of, I was absolutely terrified about it. And, and now the stakes, the sort of stakes feel higher, as it were. That's not to judge anyone who, who wants, wants to do it, but I, I'm glad I did it all those years ago and not now. Do you find you're like super protective of your face if somebody starts throwing a ball at you or suddenly think I might, I might not play tennis because I get very frightened of balls coming at my face? <laughs> yes. It's like, funny enough, not long after I'd had my nose job, I went on a sort of, I, I don't really know why I did this, but I went on a kind of activity holiday and day one involved white water rafting where it was, it was yeah. announced that we might be sort of hurled out of the raft into the kind of rocky rapids. And I was in a state of absolute time to get my four thousand pound nose might be exactly smashed on the german rocks literally horrified and yes i am i'm I'm very conscious of not sort of it not being waxed you know it it was an expensive Mm. nose um avoid plain glass windows exactly yes (laughs) Yes. (laughs) one can never be too careful no, no, no. Well, my nose is too big, but I've never really cared about it. No, honest. your nose is not big. It's The thing is, it's straight. The problem yeah, is if you've straight, got yeah. great big bumps in it, or mm. mine was flattened, yeah. so mm. it just makes it it's different. The bumps are thing mm. for most people, I think. And I, honestly, I used to just cover my hand, cup my hand around the, my nose all the time as a kind of, if anyone was looking at me from the side, that my default reaction was just don't look at my nose. I, you know, it's taken away all of that. So actually, I, I think I wrote in my piece, you know, it, I didn't think it made me beautiful because God knows it would take more than any years to do that. But it just made me stop thinking about it. And that's really what I wanted to achieve. I just wanted to have to feel normal yeah. about my pet face so that some days yes. I wake up and think, oh, gosh, you look terrible. Some days you wake up and think, oh, I look quite good. But it's nothing to do with my nose. So psychologically, it had a good positive mm. effect. You see, I think I think these things do have a positive psychological effect. Mm. I mean, I remember when I finally did something about my thin hair. Yes, and, and, I remember that. And got yeah. a proper hairpiece and mm. stopped pretending that I didn't basically have you yeah. know, Bobby Charlton's hair. <laughs> I felt so much happier about yes. it because it just was. I just was one thing less to worry about because yes. I didn't have to go. You know, because when I, you know, when my hair was natural and incredibly thin if it was raining I'd sort of have a panic attack because Mm. I knew that if I walked out in the rain it would immediately you know I would look ridiculous Um, you know or if it was sunny and it was so I I get that I get the sort of mental health benefits Mm. of actually if you have an issue that really upsets you of dealing with it yeah I agree and actually to be fair as well I I do think it's it's whether you have a realistic sense of what it's going to achieve so I didn't Mm. you know when I told my mum I was going to have it done I said you know this is not start of some mad midlife surgery safari where I'm going to you know mm. every time you see me I'll you know a piece of my body will be in plaster it's a one-time issue I don't think it's going to solve all my problems either but mm. I think it's just going to stop this and I think that's the kind of crucial bit isn't it you know what, what I worry about is young girls having these surgeries feeling like it's going to be some kind of cure-all you know it never will be so you kind of do have to drill down into exactly why you're doing it I think. Yeah, and it can be a sort of slippery slope. It can just be a spiral of self-modification mm. that ends up in oh, all exactly. kinds of odd places. Yeah, but I exactly. do think, I do think if, if it's definitely something that you've always felt insecure about, and I think if there's an option to have it done, it's, it can really make you feel a lot happier. Mm. And I'm, gl- I'm glad I waited until I was 35, you know, because there was no... 
it wasn't, I knew myself enough and I'd analysed myself a lot and I'd also lived with it for a long time and it continued mm. to make me feel a bit miserable about myself. So, you mm. know, it, I remember thinking, the time is now. Also, my mm. um, my husband had proposed to my old nose, so that was quite important. <laughs> <laughs> Did he marry he the then, new nose? <laughs> he married the new nose several months later. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. That's very funny. Um, he, he wasn't upset. I mean, he hadn't proposed to you because of your nose. I don't think the nose had lured him in. I think he probably loved me in spite of my nose. But in fact, when I told oh. him I wanted to have the surgery, he actually did reply in the most perfect way. He said, you know, I don't think you need it at all. But if you think it will make you happier, then I will support you, which is basically absolutely what he needed to be said. As did my mum, who also added mm. that she thought a new nose, quotes, might look better close quotes so um she, <laughs> love mothers love mothers <laughs> she was very That's supportive very but just said don't tell your dad which I didn't and um mm. and he indeed never noticed as we've discussed he probably thought you were just doing some clever contouring yes yeah <laughs> shading always always gla- glasses were a little bit greasy and he couldn't see <laughs> but it's, it is interesting because the surgeon I can't bear to say the words my surgeon um but mm. the surgeon did say you have to remember you're fixated on your nose, but nobody else is. So he said, I predict a couple of people will spot it completely instantly and ask you. Many people will ask if you've been on holiday or you've had Botox or something because they think you look nice. And some people will simply never notice. And that's exactly what happened. You know, a couple of very sharp eyed friends said, have you done something to your nose? A lot of Mm. people said, oh, you look well. And then people like my dad <laughs> just yeah. never spotted it at all. So he was right. It's like when you get your teeth done. When I, I had my yeah. veneers done, exactly the same thing happened. People just went, oh, have you been on holiday? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's yeah, they can't work out. They know something's changed. Mm. And that mm. you, you, know, you sort of look nicer, but they, they can't quite work out what it is. I do remember telling a couple of friends that I'd had a nose job and they were like but why are you going to have a nose job because your nose is really nice I was like this is because it's a new nose I've had a nose job you know they were were absolutely stunned it was fascinating Mm. that was freelance journalist Catherine Knight and her nose (laughs) you've been listening to The Female Half Hour with me Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones you can visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts videos opinion pieces and more and if you want to get in touch please tweet us at mailplus me at Westminster Wag or Imogen at Imogen EJ thank you for listening (laughs) 